This is the SFF Audio Podcast. In this week's podcast, we have a recording of An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce, read by Bob Newfeld. Stay tuned after the story for a discussion. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Newfeld. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards, laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway, supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who, in civil life, may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest a formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the centre of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot-planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into the forest for a hundred yards, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground. A gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree-trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and the fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the centre of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. 
The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about thirty-five years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears, to the collar of his well-fitting frock-coat. He wore a moustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark grey, and had a kindly expression, which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion, like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the toiling of a death-knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their great infrequency the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He enclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. "'If I could free my hands,' he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. 
My home, thank God, is yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 2. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave-owner, and like other slave-owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist, and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who, in good faith, and without too much qualification, assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'Are the Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and we are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and put a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. Uh, about thirty miles. And is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad, and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry, and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. 3. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness 
and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fibre of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification, and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire, heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud, of which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance, he swung through unthinkable acts of oscillation, like a vast pendulum. Then, all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him, and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river! The idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness, and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible! He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot, that is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavour! Bravo! The cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water-snake. "'Put it back! Put it back!' He thought he shouted these words to his hands for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish. 
but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously, with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight, his chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face, and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass. The humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat, all these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment the visible world seemed to wheel slowly around, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. The movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice and a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him, and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquillity in the men, with what accurately measured interval, fell these cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! 
Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time under water. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine, as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort, and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him the cannon had taken an hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. "'They will not do that again,' he thought. "'The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me.' The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort, and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex, and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms, a strange roseate light shone through the spaces among the trunks, 
and the wind made in their branches the music of aeolian harps he did not wish to perfect his escape and he was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken a whiz and a rattle of grape-shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream the baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell he sprang to his feet rushed up to the sloping bank and plunged into the forest all that day he travelled laying his course by the rounding sun the forest seemed interminable nowhere did he discover a break in it not even a woodman's road he had not known that he lived in so wild a region there was something uncanny in the revelation by nightfall he was fatigued footsore famished the thought of his wife and children urged him on at last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction it was as wide and straight as a city street yet it seemed untravelled no fields bordered it no dwelling anywhere not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation the black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram and a lesson in perspective overhead as he looked up through this rift in the wood showed great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations he was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance the wood on either side was full of singular noises among which once twice and again he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue his neck was in pain and lifting his hand to it found it horribly swollen he knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it his eyes felt congested he could no longer close them his tongue was swollen with thirst he relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air how softly the turf had carpeted the untravelled avenue he could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet doubtless despite his suffering he had fallen asleep while walking for now he sees another scene perhaps he was merely recovered from a delirium he stands at the gate of his own home all is as he left it and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine he must have travelled the entire night as he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk he sees a flutter of female garments his wife looking fresh and cool and sweet steps down from the veranda to meet him at the bottom of the steps she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy an attitude of matchless grace and dignity ah how beautiful she is he springs forward with extended arms as he is about to clasp her he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck a blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon then all is darkness and silence peyton farquhar was dead his body with a broken neck 
swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. End of An Occurrence at the Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Milko. And I'm David. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. Kaor. <laughs> well, is that a Martian greeting or a that is that is the universal Martian greeting? Okay, Kaor. Fantastic. Kapla. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think kapla means greeting. I think it means okay or something like that, doesn't it? Like, I, I will obey? I think it means live long and prosper. Oh, maybe. Wait, so oh, that's like that. Vulcans. <laughs> I think we're getting a little off topic, though. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about a, a short story. Uh, I think this is probably the most famous short story that we've ever talked about on this podcast. And... I was surprised to hear Scott had never read it prior to... I have not, or I had reading. not. I had not. And I read it, and I thought it was brilliant. I was kind of blown away by it. Had you not even heard of it? No, I don't recall ever hearing about this story at all. I, I don't think I've ever read anything by Ambrose Bierce other than something called uh, The Devil's Dictionary. You know, I, I recall flipping through something called that and reading definitions and chuckling. Yeah, he's sort of a comedy writer, mostly. Mm -hmm. And this has got a bit of uh, comic irony to it anyways, but um, who else has read this only for the first time for this podcast? Well, I had it in high school, in English class. Yeah, it's pretty standard, I think, in the States. Yeah, hmm. American I classic. I read it in uh, university when I was um, doing a report for about a um, well-known German dramatist, uh, Heiner Müller, and he, he quoted this story in several, several of his uh, dramas. Huh. Hmm. Well, David, I, I read it back in high school. I re well, I was originally turned on to it. I uh, back in the fifties when Famous Monsters of Filmland. You remember that magazine? Uh, Every we every every month uh, there were advertisements in the back, and they had this really cool section of, of uh, spoken word recordings, oh, uh, cool. scary shows, and of course I could never afford it, but I was always looking at this one that was like Sleep No More, recorded by Nelson Olmsted, with stories like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. So I uh, eventually went out and I found it and read it uh, way back in high school. And uh, it really, it didn't impress me that much at that time. It uh, I, I you know we were I was growing up a Twilight Zone and then Outer Limits and uh, One Step Beyond and all that. So it seemed pretty tame to my lurid imagination at the time. Hmm. But then um, years years later, my wife and I for our honeymoon went on a, a Mississippi Riverboat cruise, and uh, every little stop along the the way, they were selling little thin books of Ambrose Bierce Civil War stories in which this one showed up again. And I read that again back uh, around 99, 2000, and I thought it was a very interesting Civil War story, ghost story kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I went and revisited it again for this podcast, and uh, 
uh, interesting, interesting insights that Beers had. Now, now I'm looking at it from uh, the perspective of quantum mechanics and mm-hmm. different eigenstats and all that. <laughs> so the guy was prophetic in many ways. And I, too, mostly you hear say Ambrose Beers and I think of The Devil's Dictionary, which I think nobody has ever actually read. They've actually leafed through it. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do with it, I think. It's... Mm-hmm. It's not a. It's a dictionary. It's it's yeah. a. It's a bunch of jokes, basically. Right, and he was a very, very brilliant, witty, cynical kind of man. Yeah, totally. The only other story I've read by him, other than you know looking at the Devil's Dictionary and not having read read it cover to cover, is uh, one called the Damn Thing, which is a uh, sort of Lovecraftian horror story, um, but. W- What's different between this story and that story is that story, I think the humor is there to be found, whereas the humor here is more in the situation. Uh, th- that one, it's got an opening chapter, and, and the opening chapter, I mean, it's only a short story, but opening chapter is, one does not always eat what is placed on the table before one, or something like that. And that's because they're looking at a dead body on a table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so there's a humor. There's a humor in the sort of the meta part of the story, um, but I- even that one is a, it's basically a ghost story. And um, I was looking at the uh, internet uh, science fiction database uh, listing of all the s- publications this story's received and how it's been classified. And I wanted to throw some of those out for you and see see what you guys thought of them. So this is the yeah. list. Okay. Sorry. No, I was what, just going to say. What do you want to say? Um, I didn't consider this a ghost story. Well, let me let me give you the list, and then okay. you, you tell me which, which one you think it falls into. Okay. So, here's the list. It's a horror story. It's a ghost story. It's a weird story. It's a weird war story. It's a dream story, or it's a suspense story. I like that one the best, because hmm. it's got a pun in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. What do you guys think? Oh. Could Scott? be a Philip K. Well, Dick uh, alternate reality. <laughs> alternate, <laughs> alternate reality. No, I, I, I think. Go ahead. I think it's got some merit. That's got some merit. Scott, I, I think. I think probably dream story, but if you call it a dream story, you've uh, spoiled it. A dream story. Hmm. Uh, well, I can well, see. Let, let me tell you what. What I thought when I first read it is, I thought that it was a story about. The perception of time. Sure. It so, is. So, I mean, do any of those fit that? Because that's what I consider this story. Well, I, I, I think that there's one way to read it, which is not as a genre story at all. Just a short story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably why it's being taught in high school still, is because it's just a, a stylistically well-written story. <laughs> and it sort of gives us a sense of... Uh, how to play with uh, time and space in sort of a weird situation. Is that what you're, you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about basically what, what this person goes through at that moment. And his moment lasts a very, very long time in his perception. You know? Yeah. That's, that's what I think it's about. Um, or that that's what I came away with and that's what blew me away about it because, you know, we all experience time at different speeds, you know, when things happen. Mm-hmm. 
And Mirko, I've never, I've well, never heard it uh, put this way Sorry, before. Scott. No, go right ahead. Yep. That's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just uh, I, I had troubles classifying it into um, like SF story, and I wondered why you guys have chosen this this story <laughs> because I I don't see any. It's a great story, by the way, um, but I don't see any um, science fiction related uh, stuff in there. But um, as you said, Jesse, um, it's it's a well well told story because if you um, if you pick up some just some words or some some uh, some lines there, uh, you see how how great it is written. Like if he says, "The man who was engaged uh, engaged in being hanged." Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's engaged. <laughs> right, and I had to look it. I had to look it up because I was was not familiar with the use of engaged in, <laughs> in this context, and um, I have a, uh, a translation in German, and that he he says engaged is uh, to be busy with, uh -huh. right, and so this this is a this is a fine example of how Beers um, picks words and and does his stuff. You know? It's this was very very great. Well, yeah, I think. I and that's yes. that's a lot of what what we're seeing as you know why it is a classic in almost everybody's view who's read this story thinks it's a classic. The only people who don't seem to like it are high school students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think Marco, you you actually have picked up on something that's very important to the story, and that is the the way the tense in which it's told. It's it's a very passive story. Everything happens passively, right? This man has nothing active going on in his yeah. experience. The, the entire story, uh, I, if not told in flashback, the, you know, the second section, is what is being done to him. And even when he's looking at his hands, right, he's, he's choking and he's looking at his hands um, under the water, I guess it is, and he's saying, oh, isn't that interesting, the way my hands are working? I, Go for it, hands! <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and his, his legs are kicking. Go for it, legs! You know, he's watching as a juggler does his work, and, and he doesn't do anything. And yet, if we go back to how he gets into this situation, he has a, a Union soldier come disguised to him and ask, hey, guess what, there's this thing you could do, or one could do, um, and does he decide to do it? That's his only choice in the entire story, is that he decides to go and do this thing that was offered to him as one way to act. But everything after that is either delusion or dream, or what, however you want to classify it. That's really his only choice in the whole thing. He has desires, but he doesn't have choices. And I think that's, it, it even works in the title. What's happening in the title? An occurrence. <laughs> it's not a hanging, right? That, that'd be a verb. It's an occurrence. Something happened. Hmm. And what that Wait. happening is, is, is the question of, I guess, the ambiguity of the title. Sorry, Tam? Hmm. I was going to say, maybe it's just like the style of the, that, the time, the style of writing. Things are more like in a passive voice. And <laughs> you think? Well, that, that's my amateur observation. <laughs> Maybe someone else can confirm or deny it. Could be. David? Well, it seems, well, for me, I'd say it's, it's a dream story. I mean, the whole, the whole structure of it and, and 
and the way stuff bops around there's it's not a real straight narrative i mean we we talk about this occurrence hanging uh, he's being hanged <clears> on the bridge and then we jump backwards in time to the union soldier coming and suggesting maybe you want to do this and and uh and we never get an intimation that he actually goes and does it. I mean, we get the end result that he's being hanged for it. But it's very dreamlike. It, it, it bounces around uh, from, from, from point to point, and you're left to draw all the, the, the lines between those points. I used to, myself, uh, when I was in high school, I used to have out-of-body dreams where, you, you know, you, you're, you're dreaming that you're about six feet above your body and can look down on mm-hmm. it. And uh, those dreams were very much like this. Uh, here I am looking down at myself, and next thing I know, I'm at my grandmother's house. Now I'm back, uh, now I, you know, and now I'm across the country, and now I'm back home. Mm-hmm. And uh, Beers really caught that extremely well. I mean, just stream, I, I guess we call it stream of consciousness now. Uh, very modern writing in that sense. I mean, uh, he I was writing... He was writing well before James Joyce was was pulling this kind of stuff, and uh, so very dreamlike, very out of body, um, and very subjective. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, the uh, word for it: Subje- subjectivity, right? Yeah, just point of view. This is an occurrence happening to this guy, uh, and he senses this, he senses that, he remembers that. It it's really very brilliant. I mean, maybe you could call it a Henry James type psychological story. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think all of that is. It, it, it's just one little gem, and you can say all these words about it, and that's just an indication of how good the story is because it, it fits all of this uh, talk and, and interpretations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the adaptations, um, I think Scott will like this because uh, I've been reading his, his texts lately, and they, they sound <laughs> like this, this will be something he likes. But uh, one of the adaptations for Radio Drama, which I posted recently, um, uh, had an introduction to the to the adaptation, the radio drama adaptation, and I thought, you know, they don't usually do this at the beginning of one of these radio dramas for suspense and escape. They don't usually make this uh, exclamatory uh, remark. They just usually get on with the story. But it was like somebody was getting angry that <laughs> <laughs> they were having to adapt or something. And so this is what he wrote. He said. Each year, or he, what he says in the script, each year thousands of short stories roll out from a multitude of typewriters. They march across the pages of our magazines toward well-deserved oblivion. Few are memorable. <laughs> few still are classics. They pass the time and are forgotten even before the paper on which they are written is reduced to black ash. But occasionally, a story is written which is a true classic, an unforgettable tale. And hmm. then they present the their adaptation and i think that there's something i mean this is was written in 1890 or published in 1890 well after the civil war and it is kind of i mean it is included in those war story collections and bierce was you know that was his time the civil war but uh i think it fits well into the ghost genre even though it has theoretically no ghost in it sort of Mm -hmm. sort of Sort of, uh, yeah. Who who is this guy who who is is, wa- is going back home and say, talk, looking at his wife and all that? Uh, mm-hmm. I think it is a uh, well, uh, you know, you can call him a a a, 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 a whatever. Uh, I don't even remember the name for it, but a ghost, uh, 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 a second uh, spirit. What? Yeah, who? You know. Uh, the, the spirit is separated from the body. A, a projection. There it is. Yeah. An astral projection. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Merkel, Mer- um, you're saying that it's 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 a. Uh, I I would have thought you would have seen the connections to like Lovecraft and. Um, not so much Poe, but Lovecraft and especially Algernon Blackwood. That Algernon Blackwood story we did, I think, is is well tied into this one, um, which is uh, about a guy walking through the moors of England and having an out-of-body experience in which he sees the future, kind of, in someone else's point of view, kind of. Yeah, I can remember that. But um, during... Uh, research, I found out that Ambrose Pierce has been seriously wounded. He, he, he was in the Civil War, he was a scout. And then I, I read that he was wounded in 1864, uh, I guess. And then I, I thought, what, what, this, what this person experienced, what the narrator uh, say, says about it, could be a uh, near-death experience. Hmm. Well, he's definitely near death. I'm, I think. He, yeah, I, I think know. he goes a little. Couldn't get any closer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I mean, this is a, a, a medical from a medical uh, mm-hmm. point of view. You can say that um, there is that um, you know the researchers on what happens to the brain or what happens to <laughs> to the person if it if he he or she dies. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Um, Within this the um, tunnel and the light, sure. He sees, yeah, he sees the tunnel and he sees his uh, his whole life uh, running like a like a film. Um, you know that this could be this near death experience, and I'm I, I don't know how serious Pierce's um, wound head wound was, but probably he experienced this as well because um, we we have a we have famous uh, uh, scientists who try to explore the near-death experience and there is there are um, similar visions um, of things that happen you know what I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what I was trying yeah. what I was trying to say that he um, Bears probably knew what was happening um, with people who who were just uh, about to die Yep. Yeah, this is a bit difficult to to mm-hmm. to say, but yeah. probably he 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 um, had this experience himself, or kind of, or anything like it, or he was thinking about it, uh, lying wounded. Yeah, that's very mm. interesting. Mm. Yep, seems likely to me. Mm-hmm. I just had a thought that it's very interesting. Uh, he was, you say we, this was probably written around eight. 1880, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, very hot, trendy stuff around then was inter- dreams. I, when was mm-hmm. Freud writing his interpretation of dreams and all that? But I remember specifically Strindberg was writing a play called a dream play, where they attempted to create that that weird world of a dream and, and create some kind of form of art out of it. So it was very much in the forefront of, of the society and the art world at the time was mm-hmm. uh, was exploring these alternate realities. I mean, we had uh, we were reacting against the hyper-realism, I guess, of the end of the century of Zola and all those really well-made novelists and, and the really cutting-edge guys. They actually were delving into 
craziness and and alternate realities and the reality of a dream. So I actually see very this you know as I say uh, I, I I used to experience dreams like this. Strindberg was trying to capture a dream in in his play, and Bierce is doing the same thing. And uh, once you get into a dream world, it is weird. It is out of the ordinary. So uh, science fiction, weird horror, uh, whatever genre you want to call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it fits. I think it fits in into the continuum, right? It's it's not space opera. That's for that's for bloody well sure. <laughs> no, no, no. But it really fits into the continuum of. I mean, if if you, if you compare it to say a story like the Horla, right, which is has also been classified as a ghost story by Guy de Maupassant. That that story, I don't think it's a ghost story. I think it's an aliens alien invasion story, kinda. Um, <laughs> But he has out-of-body experiences. He he has no control over his body. He uh, has um, mood swings and all sorts of strange things. In this one, I I like the way. You know, it. I think this is one of the ways you can tell it's a classic is because it's sub so many possible interpretations. And one way we we can see, I think, is we just look at the setup and then see how well it's fulfilled later on. So. All the things that, like the the driftwood in this mention, very prominently in the first, first section, going down the river, how slowly mm. moving. Mm. Um, that's him, right? But it's also the time that he's sensing, the ticking of his watch. I mean, is the most obvious one. Mm. And this is the this is the the point at which the students either get it or don't. Um, if they get the time is slowing down in that section, if they're really reading the text, then they can say. Guess what? It's a real good story because I bet Scott's our best choice here, right? Scott, you never read it before today. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery story, right? A mystery story? Oh. Well, yeah, yeah. You don't know what's happening. Um, well, but it's a mystery because if your suspicions are peaked, you don't. It doesn't say this is a mystery. There's a murder. There is a murder, right? In a sense, but. <laughs> More importantly, it's a mystery story because all the pieces that are there to be found, he never cheats and says mm-hmm. he's actually being hung and the rope has broken. That's not the way that Bierce is telling it. That's our subjective point of view from our character. Mm-hmm. So yep. when the rope breaks, that's his point of view. It's not uh, outside third-person perspective, even if it seems that way. True. And so yep. all the things that happen, you know... The slowing down of time and the trip through the woods, those are all foreshadowed in his desires to escape. Yeah. And the things he sees, you know, the slowing down of time where he sees the, the uh, detail, the million blades of grass, I think it's how it's put, the uh, spider on its web, right? He can see infinite detail and infinite depth. That's either um, because he's so full of adrenaline that every time is slowed down. Or it's that he's hallucinating so much detail in his imagination of escape. And that lets us feed into the third part. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's the way I, I would say it's a kind of a mystery story. Hmm. It's just hidden as there's no detective. We're the detective, in a way. Sure. Well, I guess LibriVox considers it a ghost story since they put it in their ghost collection. It's in ghost collections. It's <laughs> story collections. 
Isaac Asimov had it in uh, as a, in a ghost collection. Um, but I think it's it's really subject to interpretation. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, and it, yeah, it is interesting that you know, just like Henry James, turn of the screw. We're talking about what it all means, and you can't say no to any one of these things. Just like Dave said. Yep, it's remarkable that way. So, I, I have one thing that came to me. Uh, I thought that this was really interesting when I started thinking about it. And uh, it came after, you know, four or five listens to the story and watching the adaptation of the, the Twilight Zone one, the French uh, short film version that's in the Twilight Zone. And, and I was thinking, why does the lieutenant or the lieutenant become a corporal when he switches sides, you know, fakely? He goes behind enemy lines and changes his rank. And I was thinking, well, what was the point of that? And, I, you know, it could just be, oh, well, that's more believable, right? That's the easy answer. It's more believable for whatever reason. But I didn't think that – I didn't let it go at that. So I kept thinking about it. And then I remembered as I was re-listening that the first – section where we're on the bridge we get a description of all the soldiers and what they're doing in great detail in a very non um, dreamlike way in a more of a third person uh, here's what this guy's doing and his arm is resting here and uh, that position is unnatural and it's showing fixity and blah 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 right but if you remember all the positions of the soldiers on the bridge there's private soldiers guarding the ends Mm-hmm. There's a sergeant standing on the uh, on the uh, the board. There's a lieutenant, right, who's also the the um, uh, he's the he's the one who tricked the the guy into. I I, may, I might be confusing one of the um, one of the uh, adaptations with the actual story now, but there's a lieutenant in one of the versions, and he's. Um, He's uh, he's also the the union spy, who goes behind lines as a as a corporal, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's finally there's the captain, and I was thinking, okay, all of the bo- all of the bodily representations of an army unit in a war story are represented, except for the corporal, right? Mm-hmm. And then I th- realized, well, what's corporal mean? It means <laughs> body. Hmm. Of the body, right? And who is the body? He, they're, all, they're all represented. Peyton Farquhar is the body. Uh-huh. It's a pun. It's a, hmm. it's a hidden pun. Hmm. Um, hmm. It's a hidden joke that makes this whole situation. He was set up. Peyton Farquhar was set up to be caught. He, he, he was told by a patriot of the South, he thought that he had an opportunity to serve his country. He goes and does it, and it was a setup, right? They were looking for people to hang. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he ends up hanging because they're missing that person. They're missing that person in their troop, the body. Hmm. I thought that was just oh, an yeah. interesting little setup to it. Oh, fascinating. I completely missed that aspect, but uh, Jesse uh, 
the fact that this is Beers and he was such a clever wordsmith, it's, it makes perfect sense. And that's the kind of thing that Beers, uh, as an artist in crafting the story, probably was doing on purpose. So I yeah. think you are on the right track there. But it's, it's also like it, it, it's, it's there to be found because the words – I think that as we're reading it, we are, we are not – we know on a certain level that uh, he's dead. We know on a certain after a certain point before the end where it actually tells you you have a great suspicion mm-hmm. that he's dead and that or at least dying right and that right. he is not uh, experiencing reality because I mean at, after a certain point he's got his tongue sticking out of his mouth because he's so thirsty and his eyes are congested okay mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he's getting worse not better as he's yeah. getting away from the you know he's 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 running. I mean, all the all the things that happen to him are foreshadowed in what we actually, in, you know, see from the third person point of view. His legs are kicking. That's him running, right? And so mm-hmm. our knowledge of that of that being uh, all there on the page to be found gives us some insight in an unconscious way into uh, the inevitable ending. That I think gives us a, a new, you know, say, aha, we get that relief because we were right, even though we didn't even think, you know, it comes as a surprise, I think. Is that how you would say, when did you know, Scott? That well, I think at the point you just stated when his tongue was out and that image was in my head, that's when I realized that I thought that he was dead. And then... But, you know, first, I had suspicions all along because of how he got out of the ropes you know, it was it was almost magical. You know, it's um, wish fulfillment. Right? It is it's wish fulfillment. So you know, there were things going on there. Where we're like, hmm, you know, interesting. You know, that made me think that it wasn't real. Right. It and be um, he was looking escape. at the guy's eye, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to see details that you wouldn't normally be able to see if you were that far away. Absolutely. Yeah. So there were all these things going on that um, made me realize that something was going on but the, but the moment that you mentioned with the tongue hanging out and the eyes that's you know if you if that picture that in my head he was he was hanged yeah mhm mm-hmm. and you know uh Marco, you were talking about the um the the near death experience when he gets up on that beach when he's out of the water right i i i don't know if it's true now but i i i feel like i had suspicions as soon as he was underwater and not drowning they said oh the water's not going into his his uh lungs because the rope is so tightly around his neck okay except Really? <laughs> Why, wouldn't you be trying to breathe? Uh, like, I have a suspicion. I think that's where it begins, right? Is, is that, okay, he's drowning, but he's not wet. His lungs aren't wet. He's, he's not breathing in water. He's not... I mean, he wants to breathe, but the, the wetness, all the bullets, I think everything can be explained by just a, sort of a naturalistic interpretation. And you don't have to say it's a ghost. He, he's escaping because... It's one. Oh, I'm. I've been talking too much. You guys have something to say. Well, I actually, um, I my read on it, the most recent time was I forgot 
you know, I'd read it before, but really forgot where it went. So there's a par- portion I think, okay, they hanged him. Oh, wow, what's, what's happening here? Oh, the rope broke. Now he's in the river. Okay, is he supposed to be alive? Well, he's got a lot wrong with it. I'm wondering, and for a, sec- a split second, I wonder, are we going to Igor, who got hanged and his neck is broken, but he's still alive? Mm. But, uh, you know, he's describing this. And, and the, so the questions are in my head. Yeah, where is he going with this? Is, uh, is the guy alive? Is, he, is it a botched execution? Uh, uh, oh, no, we're at the end. Yeah, he's really dead. Okay, that's kind of what I thought. Hmm. What's Igor from? Igor, that's uh, Son of Frankenstein. He was uh, the old, the old uh, body snatcher who they hanged and they botched it, so he went around with a broken neck, but he was still alive. Well, I think that th- those things actually happened, fairly. Uh, yeah. I mean, routinely. The, um, I was reading, a long time ago, I was reading about how, how the style of hanging executions changed, and it, it sort of evolved because everybody's doing it and everybody's... Most of the time, they're amateurs, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're local people. They say, okay, this guy's a murderer. What do we got to do? Oh, we got to kill him. How do we kill him? Uh, I hear you hang people, right? So the problem is, is there's no internet to look it up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's no, uh, maybe there's a book, but not a, it's not available well, in the library. If you, right? if you botch a hanging, does the guy get to just live? All they sorts say, well, of different if things you didn't happen. die there, then you're free? All sorts of different things happen. So hmm. one, of, one of the things that would happen is they would hang people um, just by pulling them up. So they put the rope around the neck and then they start pulling. Mm-hmm. Right? The problem with that is it takes a really long time and they can't be sure that he's dead. Mm-hmm. So that when they cut him down, he comes back to life and they say, oh, God, we got to ha- pull him back up. And eventually they just, you know, they feel so bad about what they've done. They sometimes would let the guy go. Or even worse, they say, you know, we better not do it that way. We've got to have them drop. And so they, like, push somebody off of a bridge. But if they push, if they've got too much slack in the rope, their head comes off. And that's, they're not trying to make it messy. They're trying to make it as uh, humane for themselves as possible, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't want to, people are hard to kill. And and that's right. And if you're you're hanging Clint Eastwood, he'll come back and get you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Make sure he's dead. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were watching Braveheart the other night, and that used to be uh, one way that you would get rid of traitors is hanged, drawn, and quartered. And they would be it wouldn't yeah. be a, a broken neck hanging, it would be a suffocating shin type hanging just until the point of death, and then you'd cut them loose to do more evil things to them. Wow. No. Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, man. The, the story was spoiled for me because um, I was reading about it in an interview with Heiner Müller, mm-hmm. and then he summarized it in two sentences. So I actually knew what, what was happening. Hmm. Does um, that make it not so worth it, reading, though? That's my question. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's great. It's great. Anyway, to, 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 to watch a movie the second to watch him to watch it the first time. Right? Yeah. Because you you look at the construction and and uh, how it's been transported and and stuff made it really really yeah. great. Yeah, I, I always remember the ending, so that wasn't a mystery for me. But uh, I I mean I this is like many decades ago, so I was just like 
learning about his style and, and stuff. He seems to write very long paragraphs. At least on the iPad, it looks that way, and it's very descriptive. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's there's there's almost no di- dialogue at all. Um, there's almost all, almost no characterization at all. Um, but you know, one thing we haven't really touched on very much is that it is a war story, and it is often classified that way. I think because people have difficulty determining what other way of classifying that could be but they definitely know it's a war story because it's set during the civil war right yeah and he does comment a little bit about military um one of the things that i marked was this sentence it says death is a dignitary who when Mm -hmm. he comes announced is to be received with formal manifestations of respect even by those most familiar with him in the code of military etiquette silence and fixity are forms of deference and if you think of any funeral, that's also true, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Lots of lots of extremely straightened arms and elbows, and and lots of fast, hard saluting, and a lot of silence, other than you know a little tune being played. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but in the heat of battle, it's it's not silence and fixity. It's the exact opposite. But mm. there, you don't know that you're going to die. Yeah. You're just expecting to whereas in this case that's the plan and it it's it's interesting in one of the adaptations i heard um they they talked about uh his constitutional rights um Hmm. you know he he's he's a a person he deserves he deserves a trial and yet in that in deserving a trial he, he under which constitution they ask <laughs> yeah, right, right? Yeah. you want the northern constitution oh that's the one you are rebelling against right and, or See, is that, that, that the makes southern us, constitution that makes it a whole different thing and, and it does. I was mentioning yeah. on the on the adapt, adaptations the, I watched I, I watched two and listened to one of them and the Twilight Zone episode looked like it was a French short film that they just um, said, hey, this is so good, let's just put it on Twilight Zone. Yep. It wasn't made for Twilight Zone or anything like that. Um, and it was really, really, really good, I thought. Yeah, it's and incredibly then, faithful to many parts of the story and mm-hmm. and just ignores the stuff that's not actually adapted. Right, they really didn't add much. I mean, no, they I, added I don't nothing think they added nothing to it. Yeah. No. Now, the, there was also an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and that one went off the rails immediately, um, <laughs> because we're we're looking at all this backstory of this guy, and it's all unnecessary information, and it becomes a different story. And then but with the um, same ending, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the adaptation that I listened to, I only listened to a few minutes of, and then I just said, "Oh, this is this is not going the right way either." And that was. Uh, one that you had on your Huff Duffer, it was a CBS radio workshop, I think it was called? Uh, Mystery Theater. Mystery yeah. Theater, yeah. And it was off the rails quickly, too, because, um, you know, an audio drama, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, you, you listed several audio dramas, but how could yeah. this be an audio drama? <laughs> like you said, there's no dialogue in it. Um, Very little, yeah. You, you, it's best read. Um, uh, uh, you know, an audio book is better than an audio drama in this case, without question, because you have to add everything to it to make it an audio drama. 
I think I think that the the French short film makes an incredibly good stab at adapting it because I thought it was there's excellent. a lot of lingering scenes where he's mm-hmm. just looking at spiders in a web. He's looking at uh, the things around you. Can sense the nervousness in him, and then there's a lot of running. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. it was very impressionistic, like a French impressionistic mm-hmm. film. It's, I think it's it's supposed to be subjectivity, right? It's supposed right. to bring that. I mean, I think every every shot where it, it is sub, you know, impressionistic, is exactly in the story. So there's a scene where it's the camera spinning around and looking at the sky, right? Mm-hmm. And if you go back and read the story the second time, I don't know if you did that, Scott, but <laughs> when he's in the river, right? There's an eddy that turns him to the right, mm-hmm. and then there's an eddy that turns him to the left. Well, that that's <laughs> you can map that right back to him being hung, right? Where the rope yeah, falls down, and swings from side to side, and then twists to the right, and then untwists wow, yeah. to the left, right? And his mm-hmm. legs are – it all can be mapped back. And I think in that way, it is – It's oh, it's a mystery story. You're the detective. But mm-hmm. in the, the film version, they keep all that. The only thing they don't keep is is the, um, the, the narrative voice. And I think that is well translated to the film, and that's what you were seeing. But in, in some of those radio mystery theater adaptations and the escape and the suspense, what they, they, they add in extra scenes, like there's a snake in the water that he has to, a water moccasin he's afraid of. And also there's one scene in which there's a slave that he thought was dead who appears. Yeah. And, and that uh, was in the Hitchcock. That was in the Hitchcock yeah. version. Oh, that was in Hitchcock too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can see why they'd add those. Cause that would add some, uh, well, you some need dialogue. someone for him to talk to. Otherwise That's you're watching him <laughs> walk around, you know? So but they also detract from the argument, which I think is very easily made, which is that it's, it's uh, uh, all wish fulfillment because we see the woods. We see the, desire to go home all before he actually falls and everything since you know like there's no evidence that there's a slave in that first section right there's no evidence that there's a uh he just talks about his wife and children and that's what he he wants to do is go home mm-hmm. so yeah it's it, it's it's well, often adapted but perhaps not that well in many <laughs> cases mm. In the Alfred Hitchcock, they had him uh, thinking to himself too, which you don't see often on TV. Narration was there a narration? No, just like his his thoughts in like a echoey voice. Ah, the rope, the rope looks frayed. Oh, the rope breaks. Right. Hmm. Hmm. I guess you have to do that when there's no other way to tell the story when you're by mm. yourself. Yeah, I, I think in some of the versions I heard, there was they were talking about it, it being a miracle that he had prayed for, right? That the rope would break. Pray that the rope breaks. It's a miracle. You escaped, right? It's a miracle. And I was thinking, well, in a way it's a miracle, right? Because it is something that would be wonderful to happen if you were about to. But everything goes right for him. Oh, I, I was going to say, Mirko, back to what you were saying earlier about it being a near-death experience. Yeah. When he gets on the shore and he's so happy to be on the shore and he looks at the forest... And he looks at the trees, and he looks at even the sand that he's on. And that's in the film as well. It's, the description is actually heavenly. It's a garden, right? The forest is not a forest. It's a garden, it's described as. And uh, he is, um, 
he is it's like like a combination of heaven and eden in a way and i thought that sort of fits in with the near death experience here i mean if you've seen the the short film he's running through and eventually there's some gates right <laughs> did you yeah. did you get a chance to see the twilight zone version no i'm um, no okay didn't. couldn't see it in germany oh. i had Boo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you I don't. I, there must not be on much, much on uh, Germany's YouTube. <laughs> There's all, what's, like three videos YouTube or something. Anything? What's YouTube anyway? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do they have YouTube at all? Pardon? Do you have YouTube at all? Yes, of course. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, I just watched the uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, thing. Oh, that's funny. How one thing is not there, one thing is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, some some links I'm getting from uh, US and Canada are, are dead links in Germany hmm. from YouTube. Yeah. So, uh, any any more thoughts before we wrap? Well, as you've been talking about this, especially as he gets into the description of the guys fixation on the details of everything that's around him as he's dying, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, and when you were talking about the, the TV versions, which I haven't seen, and the way you were describing them, I just all of a sudden flashed on the Bondarchuk War and Peace with, with a scene where Andre dies. Hmm. And recalling Tolstoy, actually, there's a lot of very similar reverberations back there. The the guy's shot dead, and now and now his his gaze goes straight up into the sky, and he sees how beautiful it is, and how blue, and oh God, look at that blade of grass next to me, hmm. and and uh, it just awoke all of those memories in me. That uh, yeah, this kind of writing uh, I did read in in Tolstoy too. Yeah, if if nothing else, it's altered state writing, right? It's, yes, yes. He's not like a drug experience almost. In, and that's where I would see the connection to uh, not Ambrose Pierce, but the to um, uh, both um, Guy de Montfaucon and Algernon Blackwood. We've got people who, or even H.P. Lovecraft, right? We've got the the what's the experience of opium. Where it transports you to another dimension. Oh yes, yes. It's it, it's related to that, and I've never been choked. Uh, I haven't. That I hear that some people do uh, choking during sex for some strange reason. <laughs> I'm not really into that, but I hear that they do it for a reason rather than it's just uh, just to be twisted, right? Um, there's maybe someone there. here can explain it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is an anonymous podcast. You feel free to step forward <laughs> <laughs> and share. Nobody? No first-hand experience. Okay. Well, I, I, think, I think it's uh, well worth visiting. I'm not, I'm not sure how to classify it other than it's a classic and uh, very interesting. Yeah, I think you could definitely say speculative. Sure. Uh, Certainly, which fits under the uh, umbrella of sci-fi, uh, science, science fiction, fantasy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's an amazing thing, you know. It's it's speculative. It's psychologically, I think, dead on. All the people you who talk about these near-death experiences, and mm-hmm. uh, and of course, 
the the horrid cliche about you know his life passes before him as before yeah. he dies and and the the telescoping of time it what's truly interesting is we're getting this from uh, a guy who was living during the civil war you know so some of this we think we're very modern with yeah. these thoughts but it's been around for quite a while no the the people in the past were just as smart as us i think uh-huh. they, if not smarter and they, it's just that we'd have very poor access to what they were thinking most of the time, either because we don't read much about what they wrote or there wasn't much to be written or there wasn't much written. And I think it's probably more of the former than the latter. I think there's a lot written back then. And we just remember some of the classics Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, come in and out of fashion. If it weren't for a thousand, hundred thousand high school teachers teaching this story, it wouldn't be as well known uh, as it is. And, and yet, we still have people who haven't read it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, by the way, I did a search. Uh, this is one of the most, uh, mm-hmm. I've never seen a story more adapted as a podcast reading than this story. Uh, dozens of podcasts have it in their, mm-hmm. in their feed. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, in part, that's because of uh, it being uh, a well-known classic, but also because it's a good story. Not just mm-hmm. because, you know, I, there are some... Stories where it's cute. I think, you know, a lot of O. Henry stories, are, they're cute and they're well written, but they don't leave you uh, other than saying, oh, that was a cute story. Here, read this. It was not uh, one where you, you say, uh-huh, okay. There's something. Let's hear. How about this for an, a classification? It's an existential story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't it's know. Even, full that's, story. even that's tough. Yeah. Think? Yeah, because you can interpret it differently too. Well, it's certainly about his existence. Yeah. That's I. I think that's the only thing I mean by it is mm. is that he he's he he's hoping to continue. <laughs> yep. Trapped in a world he never made. <laughs> <laughs> it's his exegesis. That, that'll be yeah. in the, the. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That'll mm-hmm. be in the trailer for it, right? Trapped yeah. in a world he never missed. <laughs> we'll trot that one out and see if it can work this time. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>